Hey, good morning, everybody. How you doing out there? Yeah, welcome to Throwback Sunday. Uh, for some of you, you're like, what is this guy talking about? For others of you, uh, this is really bringing about a bunch of nostalgia back. Uh, just a little bit of history. This room right here is where uh, this church formally started meeting on this property for the very first time. This church was founded, yeah. This church was founded in 1991, the first uh, Sunday that we were able to hold on this property at 1820 uh, West Elliott was in this room uh, in 1997. So if you've been around the church for a long time, you're actually coming full circle back around having church here. In fact, Rachel and I were talking earlier today, we were both baptized in 2001 right back here on this stage. I've talked to some of you who are married in this room uh, and teased lots of you about are you sitting in the same seat that you used to sit in? Uh, obviously, this was not uh, part of the plan, but what a blessing it is to have a space like this where we can call an audible and still meet together. Obviously, last Sunday, we had a Sunday morning emergency air conditioning issue. Uh, we thought we had that temporarily fixed so that we'd be able to meet on Sunday. And on Friday night, uh, we discovered that we were not going to be able to meet in that room. In fact, just as an update for this week, at least for the kind of the uh, next few days, the commons and the offices are going to be closed uh, because that entire thing is on an air conditioning loop that's currently shut down. Uh, we're talking old school. You don't even have Wi-Fi today because we had to shut down our servers. That's what we're talking about. So this is really a throwback Sunday. Uh, and it's, uh, I know, it'll be okay. You'll make it without <laughs> social media for the next hour. It'll be all right. Not to mention, on top of all that, uh, I showed up here on Sunday morning last week and I was not feeling very well, but I was going to muscle through the sermon and try to get through. It turns out that I got covid I know, right? Isn't that exciting? I, uh, I've, I've worn it as a badge of honor that I've never had, I've never tested positive for COVID. I cannot claim that any longer. It took me out. And so I'm asking for a little bit of grace today uh, because my brain is still not totally reconnected with the rest of my body. So give me some grace if I say things that you didn't anticipate me saying. A couple other things I want to draw your attention to. Uh, the first one is this. It was Friday evening when we discovered we were not going to be able to worship in the worship center and we were going to have to move here. The team here at Redemption Gilbert was on campus all day yesterday hustling to make sure that we could worship together. There was tech team, worship team, facilities team. Yes. It was so encouraging as a leader to be able to see this team throw together to make sure that we could be here together to worship together. I know it's a little warm in the room, but we will persevere. We will survive. It's going to be okay. Uh, one more announcement. I think I had so many things I was going to get through this morning. Uh, oh, this is what it was. I don't know. It, I, hopefully you received one of the communion elements when you came in. We tried to have them by the door. Um, I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, but here we go. Uh, we're trying to get away from these things in the pretty near future. Yeah. I know. They have been a necessary evil. They have served us well, but we're trying in the very near future to get away from these and go back to real communion elements, which we're excited about. But here's what that requires. Uh, we need help pulling that off. If you call this church home, if this is your family, if this is the place that you attend regularly and you don't have a place to serve, to belong, to toss in, to help with what we're doing, this is an amazing opportunity for you to transition from bystander to 
game player, you can tell I'm very sporty, to on the field, something along those lines, uh, because we need help getting communion elements prepped in order to be able to hand out communion to each other on Sundays in the near future. So I'm inviting you to join Sean and Brenda and the guest services team, uh, come alongside them to help with ushering, handing out the elements, prepping the elements. Uh, You can uh, find Sean, he's right there in the corner. Hi, Sean. Uh, Or you can go out to the info desk uh, and get connected with them. It'd be really great to have your help to do that. We're going to continue this morning in our study in 1 John. Would you join me in prayer that God would be with us here today? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to be together. God, thank you for uh, air conditioning and the reminder of the gift that it is in a place like Arizona. We pray that you give us endurance today and you remind us what you want us to learn here. Thank you for your word and its faithfulness over so many years. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue in 1 John this morning. We're in chapter 3. We're picking up right where we left off. We're going to be starting in verse 4 and working our way through verse 10. You can follow along uh, in your uh, physical copy or on your app, or uh, they'll be up here on the screen. I just want to take you back to where we've started for the last number of services, especially in this First John service, on this idea of the importance of putting the word in its world. I keep talking about that because it's immensely important for us to really understand what John's trying to get at. And today in particular is an example of if you take away the context of who John's writing to and what's going on with them, you could really misapply this text in a way that would be unhelpful. So uh, you maybe already heard it as Ash was reading the text for us this morning, uh, but we're going to be talking about sin. We're going to be talking about what it looks like to live your life in light of God. Uh, And we're going to need to do that effectively by talking about how was this applied to John's church at the time that he's writing it. So just a reminder, John's an old man when he's writing this letter. He's John the Elder. He's probably about 70 years old at this time. Uh, And it wasn't too far before this that John would have written the gospel of John that's in your Bible. And John, when he thinks back about those days, there's a a part of his gospel that he records uh, in John chapter 12 where he says this looking back. Many, even among the leaders, believed in him. That is Jesus. Remember, John's a young man. He's probably the youngest disciple. He's following Jesus around. And what he's experiencing is that the religious leaders of the day are coming to faith, many of them, in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, these are the hardliners. These are the religious elite. These are the guys who make sure that everybody is doing exactly what they're supposed to do. Because of the Pharisees, they wouldn't openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they'd be put out of the synagogue. So just a reminder, uh, Jesus, all of his disciples would have grown up Jewish. They were in Jerusalem. They were attending synagogue as their church experience growing up. Uh, And when Jesus comes, he spends every Sabbath in the synagogue reading the scriptures and talking about the hope of the kingdom of God. And what John recalls as an older man looking back on that moment is that there was many people who wanted to follow Jesus, but they were afraid of what it was going to mean for them. In particular, they were afraid it would mean that they would be kicked out of the synagogue. And what that means is you're going to lose all kinds of family relationships, cultural relationships, societal relationships. You would have lost business connections. All kinds of things would have been implicated in being kicked out of the synagogue. John, as he's a young man, when he's uh, 
following Jesus' death and resurrection, John's about 30 years old. He's living as an apostle in Jerusalem with the church. And here's what John is seeing happen. This comes from Acts uh, chapter 7 and 8, if you want to follow the story. It says that Saul, or you may know him as Paul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he was dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. This is an inquisition that is going on that Paul, as an authority within the synagogue, has been sent out as a passionate young man to take care of this problem of Jesus' followers within the synagogue. He's going house to house, interrogating people, dragging people out of their homes, putting them in jail. It's not too long after this that we see Paul presiding over the first murder over of a Jesus follower, Stephen. As the crowd stones Stephen, throws rocks at him until he dies. And the text tells us that Paul stood by and approved of the whole thing. Now this is significant because John is a young man watching the tension of what has traditionally been the people of God, the Israelites, now rejecting Jesus and those who follow Jesus. And there's all kinds of violence and oppression that is going on among the Jesus followers. Now, Paul, I can't uh, obviously weave you through the whole story, but Saul, who eventually becomes Paul, has a radical encounter with Jesus and becomes a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and he feels called to spread the gospel all around the uh, eastern Turkey or western Turkey in particular. Here's part of the story of how that happens in Acts chapter 19. Here's what the text tells us. While Apollos, who was another teacher, was in Corinth, Paul, who now believes in Jesus and is following him, took the road through the interior and he arrived at Ephesus. Why is this significant? Because John, as an old man, lives in Ephesus. John's church is the church in Ephesus. Paul took the road through the interior, arrived at Ephesus. Paul went to the synagogue. This is exactly what Paul did every town he went to. He went to his brothers, the Jews, in the synagogue, and he began to tell them about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe. They publicly maligned the way. The way is what early Christians were said to follow. They followed the way. They were publicly maligning them, and Paul left them. Okay, now that's a lot of background history, but why is it important? Because it paints for us a picture of how much tension exists within the Jewish community for those who choose to follow Jesus. In fact, in Ephesus, where John lives and is writing this letter, the synagogue and those who are in charge of it are publicly maligning Christians and kicking them out of the synagogue, okay? So now that's important because John says in his letter here in 1 John, this is what he says to them, I'm writing you these things about those who are trying to lead you astray. We have to understand what are they trying to lead him astray about? What are they concerned about? What are the arguments? What are they confused about? What are they arguing about? I came across what uh, is everybody's favorite reading. Um, this is ancient Hebrew from about 75 AD. This is a prayer that is uh, recorded from about the time that all this is going on with Paul and with uh, John and the church in Ephesus. This is a letter that was read publicly in the synagogue, okay? Uh, the title of it is The Blessing for the Heretics. Now you might go, that 
that seems odd. You're playing a blessing. Where do you read this blessing? It's a, quite a doozy. Here's what they said. This is about 75 AD. So this is right in this area, uh, right in this time. This was in Jerusalem. They would have read this prayer. For the apostates, let there be no hope. Uproot their kingdom of arrogance speedily and in our days. May the Nazarenes, now I need to pause there because you, I, I said that people were referred to as following the way early on when they were following Jesus. Another way that they were referred to as the Nazarenes because they followed Jesus of Nazareth. Note, they are specifically called out by name in this prayer in the synagogue. May the Nazarenes and the sectarians perish in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life, not to be written together with the righteous. You are praised, O Lord, who subdue the arrogant. This was the attitude towards people in the synagogue, towards those who were following Jesus. They should be cursed. They should be kicked out of heaven. They should be killed. This is coming from family members, friends, community partners. People that you grew up with are now saying about you that you are an apostate and you are arrogant and you should be blotted out of the book of life. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy. At the same time, this is going on. This is a quote from the Cultural Background Study Bible. Um, it says this, in AD 89, so this is roughly in the same time, same time period, Domitian, now Domitian is the emperor of Rome at this time, Domitian dedicated an imperial statue of himself nearly 25 feet to high in the imperial temple in Ephesus. So this is in town where Paul plants this church, where John's living, where these Christians are receiving this letter. In town, there is an imperial temple set up to worship the empire and more specifically, the emperor. And during this window of time, Domitian wheels in a gigantic 25-foot statue of himself and hoists it up and says, get to worshiping me. Okay? That's pretty heavy too. Then it continues and it says this. Individuals faced social pressure to participate in the public cults. Judea... The Jews were exempted from offering sacrifices to the emperor. They instead agreed to offer sacrifices to the one true God on behalf of the emperor's health. Yeah, I know, it was, it's a great loophole. I love it, very creative. Um, but it did not come cheap. It came with violence, with rebellion, with uh, insurrection, with guerrilla warfare. I mean, the Jews were really upset at the attempts for the empire to make them worship the emperor. And so the agreement was, came upon, and here's what it was. Okay, you don't have to offer sacrifices to me, but if you could offer, offer sacrifices to your God on behalf of my health, that's good enough, close enough. So what ended up happening is if you were a Jew who came to faith in Jesus, you were protected under this weird arrangement where I didn't have to worship the emperor, but I could still make offerings to the true God that I believe in and just do it in, on his behalf. So when that protection is revoked and these Christians are now being pushed out and rejected out of the synagogue, it creates a real problem for them because the expectation on the early church, and I would argue on this church sitting right here, is that our lives and the way we live them really matter. 
John, in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4, he says this, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, I'm going to fill in some of the blanks. The hardliners, the super conservative religious folks who are so angry about the way that Christians are interacting in the culture are probably saying they're lawless heathens. They walk around in the culture and they participate. I heard they watch R-rated movies sometimes. This is kind of the attitude that would have been coming from these folks. And Paul or, and John is backing them up. He's saying, listen, everyone who sins breaks the law. They're claiming that there's lawlessness. They're absolutely right. If you're not following the law of God, you are living a lawless life. In fact, this is how we all live when we live separate from God's commands on how we are supposed to live. We are living lawlessly. Now, the technicality might be you might be living by a law. It just happens to be the law that you made up. It means that it's the expectation that you set for yourself and everyone else. And if we actually looked at it, we'd say, and you fail even the expectations you put upon yourself. Here's what it means to be a good person. Here's what it means to be faithful. And then I watch your life because if you're anything like me, you fall short of even that expectation over and over and over again because it's lawlessness. There's a quote from a book that Rachel, my wife, uh, bought for me years ago that's been really helpful to understanding all this cultural stuff. Here's what it says. Early, the early Christian emphasis on teach and teaching about everyday behavior as central to the Christian commitment is another distinctive feature that had profound subsequent impact. In the ancient Roman period and down through human history, what we tend to call religion focused on, honing, on honoring, appeasing, and seeking the goodwill of deities through sacrifices and rituals. In most of human history and in the Roman period, when you practiced your religion, it really didn't have anything to do with how you lived your day-to-day -day life. You went and you participated because if you honored the deities, if you honored the emperor, maybe they would bless you. It was a quid pro quo arrangement. I will give them what they want. Hopefully they will bless me and they will say that everything's good. The trick in the modern era here that John's writing in is that the emperor has now claimed that he is a god. While he's still alive, while he's still walking around, he's putting up a statue to himself and saying, go ahead and worship me. I'm a pretty great guy. Religion typically did not have much to say about what we would call ethics how to behave towards others, how to conduct a family or a business or the formation of character. Those were not important things in ancient Christian life. And the Jews, even the most hard line of them that were kicking the Christians out, understood that our ethics and the way that we live say so much about who we are as people. And here's what they were really getting at. Talk is cheap. You can say anything you want. What are you doing about it? You can say, in the modern day, you can say that you care about uh, the environment. What are you doing about it? You can say you care about being careful with your money. Let me see your bank account. What you say matters very little compared to what you do. And what the Christian church in this moment is trying to wrestle with is we have an expectation of how we live, and yet the culture we live in says, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Just, just go to the party, sacrifice the animal, who cares? It doesn't matter. Why are you such a stick in the mud? Why are you making a big deal out of nothing? And the argument that I think John would make is because 
Jesus paid for our sin. This is what he says. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. The reason the way that we live matters is because it mattered to Jesus. The reason that the way we live mattered is because it cost him his life in order to buy you your freedom. Don't take advantage of what it cost him so much to achieve. I have admitted publicly that I am a nerd. And I'm not even ashamed about it. I just like tell you. In fact, I might even be a little proud of being a nerd. Uh, And as a kid who grew up in the 80s, one of the things that I really wanted to do, uh, but didn't know how to do from a farm in North Dakota, was be an astronaut. Uh, And that's probably not very unusual. Lots of nerdy kids in the 80s wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, One of the things that's really fascinating to me about astronauts is that uh, in particular, if you got to go to the moon, you are in absolutely rarefied air. Very few people that have ever lived on the face of this earth have had the opportunity to view the earth from such a distance that they can see it all in one shot. And something profound happens to people when when they get that experience. In fact... There's a name put on it. It's called the overview effect. Uh, It's estimated that only 40 people in human history have ever had a view of the earth that looks something like this, where they can see the entirety of our globe in one picture. In fact, here's a quote from Neil Armstrong who got an opportunity to do this. Here's what he said. It suddenly struck me that that tiny pea, pretty and blue, was the earth. I put my thumb up and I shut one eye and my thumb blotted out the entire planet, Earth. I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very, very small. Almost to a person, when they have this experience, it dramatically shifts their perspective on the world and how the world works, and in particular, their place in the world. Seeing the the fragile nature of the Earth changes the way people process their role on that Earth. Why am I talking to you about that? It's because of what John writes next. Here's what he says. No one who lives in him, Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. What John is saying is that the overview effect is absolutely true for Christians too. If you claim to have seen Jesus, to know Jesus, to have encountered the living God in the form of a man named Jesus, your life will not be the same. That's what John's telling you. If you want to claim that you're part of the people of God and yet your life looks no different than it did before, you have not seen Jesus because it would change everything. It would change the way you process the world. It would change what's important. It would change what you emphasize. It would change what you do. It would change what you care about. And when he looks at the church and he says, here's a whole bunch of people that claim that they're God's people. We got them on the right, we got them on the left. They all claim that they're part of God's people. And here's what I'm telling you. If you keep on sinning, if you keep on living a life that does not need, is not submitted to the law of God, then you didn't encounter God. If you were here in this, in this room 20 years ago when we were doing church in here, one of the things you would have heard said from this stage regularly is that changed lives change lives. And it's really getting to the heart of this idea. A true encounter with the living God changes a person in a way that cannot be denied. And what John's trying to wrestle with is how do we answer the question about a bunch of people who claim that they are following God and yet their lives are complete chaos? What do we do about it? 
Uh, Rachel and I have been married for 23 years. Uh, in During early 2021, we bought uh, a new house. It was only the second house we'd ever been in in our married life. And we bought a fixer-upper because we are glutton for punishment and we wanted to do a bunch of work on our house instead of living in it. That wasn't really what we did, but that's what happened. Um, uh, one of the best parts about buying a fixer-upper is you have a really good excuse to buy a lot of tools. Um, so my garage is jammed full of all kinds of tools that I have used one time. Some of them are still in the boxes and maybe have never been used. Um, but uh, there is a tool that I did not purchase in the new home, uh, but I've had for 20 plus years. Honestly, I don't even remember where it came from. I don't know how I got it, but it is my most frequently and most valued tool. Do you guys want to see what it is? Because I brought it with me today. Uh, here's the first, here's how you know, it still has a case. I've had it for over 20 years. It still has a case and the thing is in the case. That tells you how valuable this tool is. Am I hyping it up a little too much? Okay, here it is. There it is. It's very nice. In fact, I'm sure many of you want to get a better look at this. So there it is. Uh, it is the Black & Decker auto leveling laser with stud finder. Now I am a dad. So the stud finding does come in handy for jokes. But that's really not what makes it valuable. What makes it valuable is the auto-leveling laser. And I'm going to try to see if this works. I'm going to set this on this table and I'm going to turn it on, okay? Let's see if we can get it to work. Check that. Check it out. Look, we got all the lights on. Look over there on the wall. Look over there on the wall. What do you, what do you see? That is a laser that is perfectly level across the entire room. And when I wiggle it, it finds level. It's incredible. It's very incredible. Why is it incredible? Well, because when we moved into a new house, uh, Rachel, I hope this isn't saying too much about us, but my wife likes to hang lots of stuff on the walls. Lots of stuff on the walls. Uh, and everything on the walls needs to be straight and lined up with everything else on the walls. And what typically will happen uh, is without the appropriate tool, and this usually happens while I'm on a backpacking trip and I come home at the end and Rachel's like, well, I did some work in the house. She doesn't know about the tool. Uh, and so usually there's a hole and then a hole and then a hole and then a nail on top of another nail. Because that's just the way it works. Unless you have the auto leveling laser. Because it allows you to line things up. It allows you to have a place that you start. Now, here's the thing. You don't get to start from anywhere. The first thing that we do is we say, where does this most important piece start? Where is it? here, and we hang it on the wall. And now from there, everything else lines up. And the auto laser becomes the tool that allows me to easily, around the entire house, figure out exactly where should it be, where should it be aligned, what should it be aligned with. It allows me to have something to look to, a reference, a place to begin to understand how should this be organized. And I think what John is telling us here is that Jesus is, is the starting point for our lives. He is the one that we look to. He's the one that we want to be in line with. He's the one that we want to align with. He's the one we want to abide in. The New Testament uses this phrase of abiding in Jesus. And I'm going to confess something to you because we're all friends here. I don't really know what that means. I mean, I do conceptually know what it means. Like I could teach it to you. Like, how do you actually abide in someone else that I don't see and don't interact with on an everyday 
It feels hard for me. But this idea allows me to understand what I need to do. Abiding in Christ means looking at him and checking everything that I'm doing in my life against the regulation. Jesus sets the bar. He's the one who lives life in a righteous way, who is holy, who has loved his neighbor perfectly, who follows God's law and is shaped by it. If I want to know what it looks like to love my neighbor, I look to Jesus. If I want to know what it looks like to confront with love, I look to Jesus. If I want to know what it looks like to pray appropriately, I look to Jesus. Because he's the one that I want to look to, to be in line with, to be aligned with, to abide in. And that is what John tells us. Dear dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. You're worried about how this is all lining up for you? You want to know if you're in line with the God of the universe? Are you living a righteous life? I'm not sure. Are you living like Jesus? Because he is righteous. And if we set our level on him, you're going to be heading in the right direction. Now, here's the temptation. And this is why context matters. It sounds like what I'm telling you It sounds like what John is saying is how do we know if you're a good person or a bad person? Do you do good things or bad things? And if I taught that in here this morning, I would expect many of you would be writing your emails. That's why we have the internet shut off right now. No, Um, You should compose an email saying, Jeremy, I know I'm not the pastor, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the way that it works. And you would be right. If we took this teaching and made it a universal truth about the way God works in the world, we'd be in trouble. But if we instead say, here we are in a culture where they're trying to figure out, everybody claims to be the ones who know what's going on. How do we know who's right and who's wrong? John says, here's how you know. Are they living like Jesus or not? That's how you're going to know. That's how you're going to figure it out. Because he's the one. I don't know how much you follow the NBA. My... uh, My relationship with the NBA has uh, come and gone over the years. When I was in high school in particular, I was really into the NBA because Michael Jordan, um, and he was awesome when we were into the Bulls. I'm right, I'm right now I'm into the uh, NBA because let's go Suns. Um, But there's been other times in my life where I've been less into the NBA. Uh, In particular, when Michael Jordan retired, it was like, why am I paying attention? Because the greatest guy who ever played the game is gone. And everybody was trying to figure out who's the next Michael Jordan, especially the NBA, because he was very marketable. Uh, So they tried to figure out, is Kobe Bryant the new Michael Jordan? Who is it? Uh, There's a name that was being thrown around right at the end of the 90s that this guy, he might be the next Michael Jordan. His name was Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson was a rookie in 1996, I think. He won the Rookie of the Year. Uh, In 2001, he had the scoring title for the NBA. He scored the most points on average per game that season. He won the MVP that year. And he took his team, which was viewed as an underdog team, within three games of winning the championship that year. It was an incredible run. And what it set up was an expectation that next year, Allen Iverson's coming out and tearing a hole in it. His team's going to win. He's going to be the best. It's going to be amazing. And the next season started, and Allen Iverson had what anyone would describe as a very disappointing season. Their team barely broke 500 on the season. They barely scraped into the playoffs. They got routed in the first round and went home. And when something like that happens, when the expectation is this high and you end up here, there's a lot of finger pointing that begins. And there was plenty to go around. 
It's the organization's fault. It's the coach's fault. And of course, it was Allen Iverson's fault. Your star player didn't show up. Post, uh, in a postseason press conference, one of the things that was being thrown around as an accusation to Mr. Iverson was that that season, he didn't show up. And when you ask, what did that mean? He, didn't sh- he skipped practices. He didn't show up for practice. When he did show up for practice, he wouldn't try very hard. Some people rumored that he had substance abuse issues, that he was showing up to practice under the influence. It was a total chaotic finger-pointing nightmare. And at a press conference, if you follow the NBA or sports in general, you may have heard a quote that Allen Iverson gave. It's a long story to get to this quote, but believe me, it's a good quote. I'm supposed to be a franchise player and we're in here talking about practice. That's what he said. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Allen was absolutely incensed. He could not believe that when they started pointing fingers, what they said was he didn't show up for practice. He said, are you guys kidding me? I'm the franchise player and you're here giving me a hard time about practice. It's not about practice. Now, it doesn't take very much sports uh, smarts to understand. Alan, it's all about practice, man. Of course it was about practice. What you do in practice matters when you get on the court. Everybody knows that. That's why you have practice, man. It's understood. One of the things about Bible translations is there we typically will, I will typically teach out of the NIV translation. So if you're on your phone and you're trying to figure out where we are, that's what we're usually using. But sometimes it's really helpful to get text from other translations. So I'm going to read to you from the ESV version two sections of this text that we're reading through that might help us to understand. Here's what it says. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. And whoever practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. I love this idea that it picks up that the Christian life, the way you live your life, is directly connected to your practice. Somehow we have convinced ourselves as Christians, as the church, that we can never practice, but when the moment comes in our real life to do a hard thing and follow Jesus, we fail. Maybe you don't. I'm going to confess I fail all the time. And I go, are you kidding? This is my whole life. I get paid to do this. And yet when the moment comes and I have to say a kind word instead of a defensive one, which one do I choose? When I have to choose, am I going to get angry or offer forgiveness? Which one do I choose? When I choose, do I need to be generous or do I need to hoard What does my heart want to choose? Why is it so hard to follow Jesus? Because you're trying to do it in the game without practice. That's why. And I think what the translation here in the ESV is saying is that in the Christian life, there is no difference between practice and the game. They're one and the same. Your practice is the game and your game is the practice. It's all one because we are integrated people trying to live our lives in a holistic way. We are being called to follow Jesus. And that means that we're going to be doing things in our lives to try to reorchestrate the way we think and the way we process in order that those behaviors, those attitudes, those uh, words that we use come naturally to us when the pressure of the moment comes. And that only happens because we make a practice of it. 
You're supposed to be a franchise player. And yes, we are talking of practice. Here's a quote I came across this week. We are what we repeatedly do. That, that's just the way it works. And you can say, I wish that wasn't true. Me too. But it is true. And what John's trying to get at is if they want to make claims about their life, these people, how are we going to measure it? What do they repeatedly do? You want to make claims about your life. How are we going to measure it? By what you repeatedly do. Because that is what we are. John continues. Here's what he says. No one who lives in him, Jesus keeps on sinning. No one practices sin. Tries to get better at sinning. No one who continues to sin, practices sin, makes a plan to keep sinning, works out to get better at it, has seen him or known him. Because of the overview effect. If you saw Jesus, you would not even be trifling in this direction. That's just the way it works. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. See why context matters? I pull this out and I tell you, hey guys, here's how it works. The one who sins is of the devil. You go, man, we are in trouble. Because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason Jesus came at all, was to destroy the devil's work. In fact, Paul, when he writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, this very church, this is what Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. John, Paul is saying to this church, it's not against your synagogue-believing brothers. It's not against your neighbors who live out in the street. It's not even about the emperor who put up the giant, obnoxious statue to himself. It's about something way deeper than this. We're talking about a struggle behind the scenes for the powers that want to lay Claim to the world. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, will continue practicing sin because God's seed is in them. They can't keep going sinning because they've been born of God. There is a discongruence that happens when you claim to follow Jesus, yet your life acts as if you don't. We call that hypocrisy. And every one of us slips into it all the time. But do you make it a practice? Is it a habit? Are you cultivating it in your life? Or not? You might say, man, that's harsh. Listen, John is just repeating his master Jesus. Here's Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus of Nazareth. Us Nazarites would probably do all right to read Jesus. Here's what he says. Beware of false prophets. They come in disguise as harmless sheep, but they're really vicious wolves. You can identify them. How? By their fruit. That is by the way that they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. Jesus is saying there is a simple way to test whether someone comes from God or not. What does their life produce? Does it produce strife and discord? Does it produce anger and division? Does it produce disunity? Does it produce hate? Does it produce fear? Does it produce wild living? 
what does it produce? That's the test. Now, we, now we, keep, we have to keep in mind, this is not a universal truth. If you sin occasionally, if you fail to live up to your intention to follow Jesus, we're going to talk about that in a second. But the reality is, fruit is the marker of whether what you claim is true or not. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Now, we're putting this in context, remember. He's talking to the church who's saying, those folks over there are claiming that we're nuts and those folks over there are claiming that we're nuts. Are we nuts? Who's right? Who's wrong? Is it us? Is it them? Here's how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is, who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and their sister. And this is where I think it all comes back together, where he says, If you don't do what is right, you can't be of God. But also, if you hate your brother and sister, you can't be either. This is what John's trying to get to us. As we take that text from way back there, and we now try to apply it to us here in this moment, here's what I think John is saying. A lack of love is as lawless as wild living. It's easy to look out at the world and say, look at how people are living. They're greedy. They're sexually immoral. They're false leaders. They are liars. They're hypocrites. Yep. Good job. You're very observant. But John says it's just as lawless to have a lack of love. And he's looking now over at these folks who have said, we hate those people who live that way. Not only do we hate them, We're going to start by hating the people that are closest to us first, our other brothers and sisters. You know these folks. Every church has two groups of people in it leaning in a direction at any time. Some of you in this room are going to be the people who, if you are tempted, are going to want to find a more conservative, more buttoned up, more aggressive towards your neighbor kind of place and friends. You're going to want to go to a place who points out all the things that those other Christians are doing wrong, how they're not preaching out of the right translation, how they're not preaching the gospel the way that you wanted, how they're friends with the wrong kinds of people. That might describe you. Some of you might go, I don't care about that at all. In fact, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to keep hanging out with these lamos because I got a bunch of fun stuff I want to get going to do. I got a weekend book for Vegas next weekend and it's going to be a lot of fun and we're going to have a great time and I don't have any rules because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? (laughs) And what John is saying to this church that's struggling between these two extremes is the lack of love that those people show is just as lawless as the wild living that those people are showing. And they're going to throw rocks at each other. And the faithful people of Jesus who are trying to stay close to him are going to be caught in the fire sometimes. I think that's what's happening to this church right here. They're going, I don't know who to listen to. I don't know what this looks like. The reality is the Christian life means a threat to be led astray from the left and the right. And here's the part that makes it even maybe even more complex than that. Both of those temptations exist within both of us depending on the time of the day and the situation. Because sometimes I want no one to hold me accountable for anything. And sometimes I want to hold everybody accountable for everything. 
And in most of those situations, I want to be exempted from accountability. But this is the temptation. How do we figure this out? How do we know what it looks like to be faithful? How do we know if we're close to Jesus? You keep your eye on him. You mark your life based on how he lived, how he loved, what he confronted, what he did, who he cared about, where he was, where he went, who he ignored. And if you can say that we together are striving in that direction, not perfectly, not without fail, not without failure, then you're doing all right. But the temptation is to then begin to be drawn to judgment of everyone else. Because guys, guess what? We got it figured out. We got it figured out. He showed us a tool. There's a whole level thing. I don't, you should watch it online. But them and them, they got it all messed up. That's just the nature of who we are as people. And the call that we have to follow Jesus is to follow him with faithfulness, with an eye to him at all the time because he is the mark. He is the righteous one. He is the one that sets before us a path to faithfulness that we are called to follow. Let's pray that God would help us to be those kinds of people. God, thank you so much. For the word of God that we have here in 1 John, it feels complex to hear about all of this going on in the background, and yet it is so universally applicable to my life, to our life, 2,000 years later. God, help me not to be judgmental and to hold people to account that I don't even hold myself to. God, you are the judge. God, help me to live a righteous life, one that follows Jesus, to give of myself, to sacrifice of myself on behalf of another. God, help me to reject the lies. Help me to embrace the truth. And that truth is Jesus, who we love. We pray this in his name. Amen.